Hello, my friends, Rob Warman here, and you are listening to The Stimulus Podcast, where we break down ideas, strategies, and habits to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Who am I? I am a physician and physician coach who helps docs reset and recalibrate. If you're having burnout, overwhelm, leadership challenges, or just feeling stuck, then coaching might help you get where you want to be. Learn more at our website, robwarman.com, where you can set up a free coaching discovery session with me to get clarity on your challenges and goals and see if one-on-one coaching is something you'd like to pursue. The Stimulus Podcast is supported in part by you, our listeners, via donations through Patreon. If you find value in the show, throw a couple coins in the hat, as it were, to help support production costs and keep the wind in the sails of the show. Link to our Patreon page in the show notes. And thanks to a few of our new Patreons, Drs. Bill Hansen, Nicole Apoliana, and Jill Yegian. That's Jill Yegian, PhD, PhD doctor of philosophy, people. But you don't have to be a doctor to be a Patreon. Oh, no. We welcome everybody. Today's episode is different from, I think, what we've ever had on the show. It's a conversation with a physician who is a stimulus listener who sent me, well, quite a story. His name is Sarangan Uthayalingam, and he is a pediatric hospitalist who was in, I could only describe as an incredibly difficult situation on so many levels from a medical standpoint, from an emotional standpoint. And in the midst of it, kind of just felt paralyzed, despondent, and profoundly self-critical. And how he moved forward from that situation is the crux of this conversation and how he used some of the tools that he learned from this show, amongst other places, to work through and work out of that deep hole. And specific to this episode, Sarangan is going to reference a conversation with Jason Brooks. That was episode 65, Bouncing Back After a Tough Case, which we will link to in the show notes. And before we jump into it, the situation that is described in this podcast is intense. This is not for kids. It may be triggering for some. Take a look into the intro paragraph in your podcatcher or the website and see if this is a situation that you want to listen to because we do go into detail and don't hold back. All right, here we go. Our conversation with Dr. Sarangan Uthayalingam. Before we get into the case, I haven't had opportunity to ask this to a guest, and I'm really curious as to how you do this since it's going to relate to what we talk about in the pod. And it has to do with using the information on the pod because there's so much stuff. And so I'm curious as a listener who is using this stuff in their clinical practice slash life, like how do you use this info in the pods? Yeah, it's it's actually really interesting, Rob. I think in the beginning, I would drive to work and I would put on uh, your podcast and listen through the episode and just take it in. And it's really, okay, that, that was great. Then as I started listening to it more, I was like, I have to write this down. I have to document this, you know, because there was a lot of process things that I could use that while I'm driving, I'm not really just kind of collating this information. 
So now what I do, I've bookmarked and downloaded to my phone specific episodes that I know I need to come back to. I journal a lot. And so I'll put that on my task list. And on the weekend, I'll sit there and I'll go through it and I'll have a Word document for I actually have a folder that is called stimulus folder and I have word documents one for example the nonviolent communication pot I had to kind of section out the giraffe and the jackal but not only <laughs> not only just like taking down the information but also taking that and saying like well where do I do that where are my moments that I'm the jackal where are my moments and so it I wouldn't be able to have that connection with the pod while driving so I've made it a part of my weekly review. So you mentioned taking notes on it. There are show notes. Do you use those or is it more you go back and listen and just kind of start at de novo? I'll use the show notes. I'll copy and paste them into a Word document as I'm listening. Mm -hmm. This Just so if I've missed something, I can go back. As I'm writing down the notes, then I'll go back and say, okay, where does this apply to me? And then is there something that I could take out of it? And it's similar to what I've done with bouncing back from a tough case, I created kind of my own process. So with the nonviolent communication, I've created my own process. And that goes into my journal, as a matter of fact. So when I'm, my morning practice is with journaling, I'll journal for about half an hour. And part of that practice is premeditatio malorum. So picturing what's the worst thing that's going to happen to me today. So now your podcast has been distilled down to apply to me in a Word document that has now distilled down further to my journal, which I use in my everyday life, if that makes sense. So that premeditatio malorum is super interesting. I was just this morning, the book, our mutual friend, Christina Shenby, she recommended this to me years ago, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Great book. Donald Robertson, right? Yes. So I was just reading this this morning about catastrophization. Because I actually, I have this event tomorrow that I've kind of been nervous about for a couple of weeks. It's just sort of like this nebulous sense of dread that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> and I was reading that and it said, yeah, so catastrophization is all what if, what if, what if. Can you switch that to either, well, what's next? What right. comes next after this? Or so what? Exactly. And I did that. I was like, oh, yeah, what's next is then this and this and this will come after. And it's all going to be fine yeah. regardless of what happens with this. Like, oh, yeah, nothing to worry about. All good. Now, it, granted, the dread did come back and I had to go through that exercise again. It's oftentimes I find our thoughts are more, I don't know, more intense than the actual thing that is happening. So this event you're going to, is it really that stressful or is our imagination made it more stressful than it actually really is? Yeah, well put. I think once I journal about that, then I'm able to kind of move forward, you know. I want to take a pause for a second as we're getting into all this high-minded stuff. So it's pretty simple. This premeditatio malorum is premeditating on the troubles that may lie ahead or visualizing the worst case scenario and then what you might do. And I'll say that the event that I was talking about actually turned out worse than I thought it would and worse than I imagined. But that premeditatio malorum helped because afterwards then I was able to process and move forward from it rather than just kind of, well, I was stuck and pretty bummed about it for a while, but had thought about what I would do when it did go horribly awry. All right, back to our conversation. Well, let's get into the case. Mm -hmm. And 
you emailed me about whew, a pretty intense sequence of events, kind of like, you know, people say like, how do you recover from the worst shift ever? Well, how do you recover during the worst shift ever? And I would say that this could potentially be in that category. So it was a doozy for sure. A doozy to say the least. What happened? I reached out to you after the second case, just to acknowledge that your work is making a difference. And for sure it was palpable. And I know if I didn't write it that night after the second case, it wouldn't have been so kind of real and tangible. So to kind of walk you through what happened that night, you know, I'm, I'm in hospital pediatrician. I work in a medium sized hospital. Now, despite it being medium sized, it certainly keeps you on your toes. This place, it serves a large catchment area. So we oftentimes due to distance, get cases that present late and there's quite a deal of pathology out there. So that's what happened with this case. Essentially, I was starting my shift around 5 PM and around 6.30, close to seven, I was told that, you know, we have an unexpected delivery to happen. It was a gravita one first time mother who was quite young and she was brought in by her midwife because she went into um, labor and she was, the baby was premature at 34 weeks. As she was in labor, the OB had identified that the baby was in breach presentation. And so given how quickly she was progressing and how long it would take the anesthesiologist to arrive if he was in a, a different case. There was really no time for C-section at that place. And the plan was to deliver the baby vaginally. And so to kind of complicate this further, the details for any other historical elements were pretty limited. The mom and dad of the baby don't speak English, but thankfully a translator did arrive closer to. Now, I remember being in like getting that call and then going to the L&D unit. And I could already feel that adrenergic surge. My, those inner alarm bells are going off. And I remember teleporting back to my medical student days and remembering prematurity breach equals bad. And, and I was already like, you know, but oh given boy. the precipitous nature of the delivery, I didn't really have much of a choice. And I would say that despite the nature of the delivery, I still felt prepared. I was communicated that there was a normal reassuring heart rate and that it would just be a tricky delivery. But when the baby delivered and the baby was immediately brought to the warmer, the heart rate was zero and the baby mm. was pale and flat. And now the difference here, Rob, from any other code big pink I've been to, and I think this is probably where my naivety or lack of experience came to the surface. This was the first time I had never seen any sort of response to any resuscitative maneuvers I had done, whether it was the intubation, the chest compressions, epinephrine, IV pokes, you name it. I was trying, it was like I was resuscitating like a stillborn. And then I started getting this feeling of like I was freezing and every maneuver that didn't produce a response, it fell deeper and deeper into this no man's land. And now don't get me wrong. I've been to other pre catastrophic deliveries where you anticipate the baby may not survive. So you're kind of mentally prepared for that. And on the flip side, I've been to deliveries where we've done a full resuscitation. The baby has not survived, but there was indications that our attempts were doing something. This was very different. And I think that's where my, that's the challenge for me in this case. I was in this no man's land where I had never been before. And I was almost in a daze. It was almost like analogous to, I don't know if you watch those old wartime movies when a bomb goes off and like you get that like single pitch in your ear. All the sound goes off and all you hear is that tinnitus. That's exactly what I was feeling. 
And I felt like I was there forever yeah. in that space. And that's where I lost control of the code. And when I came back to earth, that's where I felt the doubt creep in. I questioned every single thing I had done up until then. I remember hearing myself say, is the tube in? Are you sure it's in? You know, did you see condensation? You did see condensation or was that maybe not condensation? Did you see color change and then title? So I reintubated the child and I saw it with my own eyes pass through the cord and still kept doubting myself. Like, you sure that was the cord? Did you get the right dose of epi? Did you get too much epi? Yeah. It was some a place I had never been before. And all the closed loop communication that we're trained to do went completely out the window. I was yelling things like, get me an IV, get me the UVC tray. And I was do I was trying to do everything, but nothing all at the same time. It was a very strange place. When you say you lost control of the code, kind of lost control of your code discipline, which is like, okay, here's the way that we do things and things aren't always going to go our way, but that's why we keep disciplined, we keep it structured. But boy, when, especially when it's a child and nothing's working, it's so hard to stay on that path. Yeah. And I think that's what it was. I could not even find the path. I didn't even know where the path was. And it was close to around 25 minutes at that point. And I remember just looking at the baby and thinking, this cannot be happening. This is not happening. And I just wanted the earth to swallow me up whole. And I didn't know if it was came, came from inside my head or if it was somebody else, but I just remember hearing or saying, um, you should call it. And I remember calling time of death and looking at the father who, keep in mind, cannot speak English. There's a language barrier. His eyes were fixed on me and I didn't know if he knew or was waiting for me to tell him. But in that moment, when I had told him that his baby had died, it was the most gut-wrenching thing because I couldn't console him. I couldn't even explain it further. And the translator was doing her best, but I beelined it out of there and I found the closest sink in the, and I actually vomited. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror thinking, how did you let this happen? You don't even deserve to be here. And I remember leaving the hospital, walking outside, going for a bit of a walk and then getting in my car and driving to get some air. And for a split moment, I thought, I've got 13 hours more of this left. And I just wanted to keep on driving. We talk about this moment a lot on the show. After the hard case, you've got, there's all these other patients who have nothing to do with what you just saw. They've got no context and they've got their medical needs too. And you're it. And they, they need to be taken care of. And it's like, how do you reset? How do you recover? And you keep going on whether you're doing it well or not. But I think that this moment, if it's not approached intentionally, you know, we just had an episode on debriefing and kind of going through these things. It can bank some trauma for you. Oh, totally. Acute trauma and some chronic trauma. And I, I mean, like, what did you do? How did you recover from this? When I look back, I think driving away or walking, like, that was probably my fight or flight, my flight response. But I remember being in the car and there was this interesting quote from Marcus Aurelius that it always stuck with me is that the impediment to action advances action. So what stands in the way becomes the way. So that was, and in that moment, I got some clarity that this is the obstacle that was given to me. And it's up to me now to do what I will with it. So do I keep driving or do I return back to the hospital? And so I went back to the hospital, but went straight to my call room and started journaling. I bring my journal with me everywhere I go. And I said, how could I use this event to be better? 
And then I was just frantically journaling because I was just writing what had happened. It was almost like verbal diarrhea. And then in that moment, I remember listening to your podcast a while ago, specifically that episode about bouncing back from a tough case. And then I asked the nurse to give me some time. And then I put on the podcast with Dr. Jason Brooks and just started writing. And it's interesting because um, I read my journaling about this case twice this week. One, because it's part of my monthly review practice where I go through all my daily reflections. And second, because in, in preparation for this um, episode, and it's amazing how emotionally charged in that moment, yeah, just, just reading, like I almost felt like I was going back into that, that day and I could see the emotion, the adrenergic surge in my words. But then there was this interesting arc that my journaling took where I could feel myself integrating the words and the ideas and the lessons from your episode. And there was a calm in my journey. Even my handwriting was different. It was, wow. it was very interesting. Uh, yeah. And I, and I felt like I was just like walking through that obstacle instead of tacitly allowing it to pass over me like I'd done before. I was integrating it in a way and letting it become part of my identity and growing from that as opposed to passing over me like a tragic movie I'd watched. Let me pause you for a second. You just said something in that moment, making it a part of your identity. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So previous cases, I would certainly feel them and I would keep them with me like a story, but then I never grew from them. I bounced mm -hmm. back similar to what you had mentioned in the episode, but that's not really the goal here. I don't want to bounce back and I can't really bounce back in this moment because I have 13 hours left. So I knew I needed a process to build not only for this moment, but for short term, but also long term on how can I make this part of my professional identity such that not only can I take it with me moving forward long term, but also that I can pass down to medical students and residents that I mentor. So this reframe of making this a part of your identity sounds like turning the tragedy of that moment. There's tragedy for the family, obviously, and for the child who died and tragedy for you, turning that tragedy into, we could almost say, a gift. Exactly. Exactly. It's how do I reframe this to be somewhat beneficial that I am now a better pediatrician since this event. And that was the gift that this baby had given to me. To get to that point of reframe is the process which I think your episode excellently outlines, but to know to do that, because, you know, you always hear and say, oh, you know, you'll be better for it or mm -hmm. just keep it moving. But that's like giving me a tool that I've never seen before. And how do I use that? No idea how to get there, especially when you're emotionally charged and sick to your stomach. Let's dig into this reset process here. So you go back to your call room, you start journaling, you're listening to this episode, you're starting to reframe what happened. Walk, walk us through the details. Yeah, I think one of the first things that resonated with me in the episode, and it was quite early in your episode, was that what's in my control and what's out of my control. And that's something, you know, fundamental in Stoic philosophy. So automatically, I looked at that moment and said, this is not something that happened to me. This is something that happened in spite of me. And what am I going to do in this moment? And instead of wishing it hadn't happened, 
there's no way I can undo that. I can't change that. But what can I change? I can change my perception of this and my opinion of this. So in doing that, I said, okay, well, if I can change my opinion of this, that's the work I need to do. So that would be my step one. So already now I'm in that mode of not being a victim that something's happened to me. I'm now in becoming more motivated to say, okay, I've got work to do. And I think after that, that gave me a little bit more focus and clarity brought kind of my blood pressure down, my heart rate down, and I could think somewhat clearly. And I, then I remember listening to, and I, I don't know if it was yourself or Dr. Brooks, but somebody said, check your inner dialogue. And that resonated with me. I remember specifically underlining that and highlighting that because that inner dialogue, all that is, is an indication that something should be explored here. And so those negative feelings of reliving that case, historically with other cases, I would have shied away from because they were just too painful to think about. But instead, I reframed it to think, this is where you need to do your exploring. So this is the obstacle and this is how you will get better. And then the next thing I, what was mentioned in your podcast was reframing this to revisit your purpose. How do I anchor my mm. purpose? such that outweighs the pain that I'm feeling right now, the pain and the failure, the feeling of failure that I'm experiencing. I had that in the front of my journal pre-written. And so I flipped to it and I read it over and it in that moment allowed me to anchor such that it outweighed the pain that I was feeling in that moment and therefore allowing me to move forward. Do you feel comfortable sharing what you have written in the front of your journal, what that purpose is? Yeah, totally. I can, I can definitely do that. The way I kind of live life is that our existence is finite. And I think a lot of us probably think like that, but mine comes from um, my childhood when my father was killed quite abruptly in a car accident. So in that context, I've always grown up thinking like anything can happen at any given moment. And so in my purpose, I have written, you know, I've died 41 years. I've not lived 41 years. And because it's time, we'll never get back. So every moment moving forward is a gift. And on top of that gift, I'm privileged to be a pediatrician where parents come to you, don't know me for a hole in the wall, give me their trust in their child, their most prized possession. I get to take care of them, make them healthy, save their life. I mean, what other job does that with implicit trust? And because of that, I owe them to be the best physician I can be. Now, what does that mean? You know, and I've further defined that in different domains, but one of them is to be knowledgeable and an expert in that moment. And so I always think I'm going to be a lifelong student. I'm always going to be growing. And that wisdom, learning and studying, that's the privilege. And that's the pact that I've made for all the patients that I'm going to see. And that's my purpose. And so when I read that, I thought that's exactly what you need to do right now. How else are you going to make progress? How else are you going to be better? So why wait? I want to get to that in a moment because it sounds like you're building momentum to get you back out there. But yeah. you, you said that you hadn't lived for 41 years. You died for 41 years. What do you mean by that? Because I'm 41 years old. Yeah, I get that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, 41 years old. So I think like every all the time that's passed behind me, like I'll never get back. So mm -hmm. in essence, I've died that. So anything more, any day moving forward is just bonus. 
And so what am I going to do with that day? And that's the, I guess the principle of stoicism also called memento mori, mm -hmm. which if I think like that, then every day that I'm living is purposeful and with agency. And that's kind of how I approach my day-to-day -day work as a pediatrician. One thing that I'm thinking as you're talking about this stoic reframing that I, I think I've said on the show before, I didn't make this up, I was told this, but I've used this many times in a reframe in a situation that is just not going your way. And it is, I wish it wasn't this way, but it is this way. So how do we move forward? That's it. I, I actually wish this obstacle wasn't <laughs> in my way, but it is. So what do we do about it? You hit the nail right on the head because in, I think the first emotion I was feeling was, why did this happen to me? As opposed to it's something happened and I'm present here when this happened kind of thing. You're at this moment at this inflection point where you're looking at your purpose and part of your purpose is to bring expert knowledge to these situations. You have this trust from people who have never met you before. And part of your purpose is to bring this presence and your continual growth mindset and your continual knowledge. And now you're doing this reframe. Where do you take it from there? After reading that, it was clear that I've made a commitment to growing and learning. And as much as we learn from books and simulations, this event is also an opportunity to learn from. And therefore, how am I going to use this? So after I read that, I thought, okay, well, I need to actualize this. I need to crystallize this into actionable items. So I wrote in my journal, I have a task list that I migrate every month and every week. And I said, okay, I'm going to review this case to myself in 24 hours. And I have a document that is ever growing, a challenging cases document. And so I've added it to that. Then I said, okay, I'm going to review vaginal breach deliveries and just quickly read about that. And that would be done after the fact all of the dust is settled. But in that shift, I went to the OR and looked at the NRP algorithm, looked at the tube sizes, the depth, the doses, all the things that I knew I knew, but I wanted to review again because those that's where the doubt crept in. Did you intubate too deep? Did you get through the tube? I had some short-term knowledge goals that were actual tangible that I could do very quickly in that moment or in that shift. And then long-term ones, which are reviewing the vaginal breach deliveries and reviewing the case again to myself. And then I think after I'd gone through those steps, so, you know, kind of understanding that this didn't happen to me, getting the focus and clarity to know that this, the direction I need to go in, I need to explore this, this tragic case. And then knowing that, okay, how am I going to tie this to my purpose and make it outweigh the pain? I was able to write in my journal, actual actionable steps. Then I found myself being able to forgive myself or earn the right to forgiveness, which is something that both you and Dr. Brooks alluded to is that that ability to say you are earning the real right to forgiveness by going through this process. And it was similar to what you had mentioned in your episode, the albatross kind of just kind of flew off my shoulders. I felt like a weight was lifted and I could then move on to then to the last part of that process was, and I think the biggest game changer for me, and I, I'll never forget it because verbatim, I wrote down what you had said. You just signed a pact with that person and their family that the next time this happens, you will have more expertise. So it will be unlikely to happen again. 
And I remember saying like, my goodness, like I have now made a pact with this baby that I will grow from this. And I remember writing and I promised myself that I will get through these tasks, not only because it's tied to my purpose, but because it's tied to this, this pact that I've made with this baby. And then any time I look at my journal and I think I'm going to procrastinate this task or I'm going to dismiss it, I would be dismissing her and the life she gave to me for me to be a better pediatrician for the next child. You know, as you're talking about self-forgiveness and all of these steps that you went through to really reframe, reset, and be able to re-engage with the situation, I, I think also allowing a moment of grace for anybody out there who goes through a moment like this, you know, you do feel guilt, you do feel heaviness on your heart, and you just, I mean, you just do. And you're still going to feel that. You're still, you still feel the heaviness, you still feel the weight. It's still, it's just, you still feel sad. And there's also, you know, a bit of your inner critic in there. It's like, hey, come on, you, you, be, you can be better than this. And so, you know, you're working through this. You are activating the wise part of your brain rather than the critical, non-productive part of your brain. But the emotion's still there. The emotion's still raw. And I, mean, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I just want to make space for that, that you're still going to feel what you feel. This is, you know, you are applying logic to this and you're moving forward with logic, but there's also the emotional aspect and, you know, logic doesn't cure all, all, all emotional challenges. Exactly. And I think that uh, you're right. Allowing space for the emotion is very important. I think what I hadn't come to terms with or even learned before was how to accept that emotion, but not let it cloud my performance moving forward. And like I had said previously, I would let the pain just kind of go away with time, like passively become less and less without processing it. So often our tools of resilience are just to, just to shove it in the corner and just go forward. But taking a moment and saying, all right, what's the weather pattern in my mind right now? What's mm -hmm. this, like, what's the weather pattern? And it's, I'm not going to try to change anything. It's just, what is this moment? This moment is just as it is. And I, I'm feeling this way. Okay. I just, just acknowledge it and I right. can keep moving on, but it's like, I'm going to fight this thing and I'm going to, uh, nope. <laughs> oh my God. That's, it's like the, you know, oh, you know what? That, that's, it's a, uh, you know, we're both into these uh, old timey tales from the thousands of years ago. It's like the Hydra. <laughs> Chop the head off. It's going to grow too. So true. All right. So true. So you have made this pact. You have made this pact, mm -hmm. but the day's not over. What happens next? Yeah, the day's not over. I remember closing my journal and being like, well, okay. You know, I've dealt with what happened. I've extracted the lessons. I'm embracing the emotion, but not letting it impair me. And I'm living with this experience, not in fear of this experience, because historically I would have been like, oh my God, please do not let anything else come through this door. <laughs> and, you know, which could be crippling if another, yeah. another case came around. And guess what? Another one did before the end of the shift. And it was this time a crashing 24 hour old cyanotic baby with critical pulmonary stenosis. So Oh my gosh. The duct was closing and, yeah. and the, the baby needed resuscitation. And so this was a long, complicated resuscitation where I had the fortune of managing the initial crashing part of this 
then stabilizing the baby over a few hours, and then monitoring the baby over a few hours until the transport team could take the baby to the nearest tertiary center, which is about a couple hours away. And now over that entire time, there were so many moments where self-doubt arose, and I felt that flash of emotional trauma creep in and derailing me in that instant. And especially because some of the same people that were involved in the first case were there for the second case. And, you know, I was thinking in my head, oh my God, they're going to think I'm not good enough. Like, what is he doing here? And because I had gone through that process, although the adrenergic surge was there, it was fleeting. And I was able to put into that moment in real time, the lessons that I learned from your podcast, I actually heard in my head, Sarangan, you are a resuscitationist. Rangan, this is your purpose. This is happening here and you are just present. This is not happening to you. This is happening despite of you. Control what you can and what you can control is managing this child because that's what you're trained to do. And it honestly gave me a clarity to stay on track with the management that I knew I could do. And, and I don't know, Rob, if it was a function of just recently having listened to your podcast a few hours before this case came through the door, but it was strangely your voice. Oh my gosh. Things. <laughs> 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 so uh, that made it a little bit more easier to refocus. <laughs> Someone telling me that Sarangan, you're a resuscitation. <laughs> um, had, had you debriefed with the team after that first recess? Yeah, we had debriefed and it was very much like an emotional dump Yeah, where everyone just kind of explained how they felt. We are a tight-knit group there, so it was, it was very important to do that, but yeah. I asked about the debriefing because so much of what you're describing is doing it alone. You know, it's like this individual soul searching, but being alone in these moments can be hard. And from this, have you developed any tools or strategies that kind of involve other people rather than purely self-reflection? I have, I have an amazing wife who also is in healthcare. And historically, I've been able to unload these kind of cases on her a day or two days afterwards. But then after listening to your episode, Dr. Brooks had mentioned an SOS person, and I had never thought about that. And so in that moment, and after the, I'd done my journaling, we had done an emotional debrief. I went back to the call room and I actually texted a colleague of mine who was in the same group and we're, we're good friends. Now keep in mind, she didn't know or sign up to be my SOS person. <laughs> she just called me back. She was conscripted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So God bless her. She called me back. And, and it was in that moment where it, like, I just started spewing kind of the case to her and it was almost cathartic. And I didn't know in that moment what I was doing this for. I didn't know if I needed something back or if, I, if it was just the process of doing it. But she was very empathetic and she's knowledgeable and supported me. And it gave me that feeling that I'm not exactly what you said. I'm not alone. Although I've now come up with this process that allows me to move forward, I'm still emotionally supported. And that empathy was massive, especially for the next case. I think there's a particular skill in being an SOS person because you can be tempted to give advice or to have an answer rather mm -hmm. than just listen. You know, it's like, yeah, gosh, wow, that is hard. 
Right. And I think her skill is, and I don't, it's probably because she could hear it in my voice, is that she wasn't concerned about the details mm-hmm. of the case, mm. not the gestation, not the birth weight, not the antenatal history. It was very much so about just being empathetic and hearing me out and supporting me, but then also giving me the emotional support I need to know that if I have another case come through, I know I have this person now. And I actually verbatim told her, you are my SOS person now. <laughs> Sign here. <laughs> Sign here. There's, there's, in fact, you've, ar- you've already signed. So, yeah. You know. Well, let's, let's zip it back because in the middle of that, as you were going through that process, there's a lot of stuff happening and I'm hoping you can bullet point it maybe. What are the steps? Yeah, I think after you know, everything was set and done from that shift. And I was able to really kind of put together all my notes. I did come up with a five point summary where the first step would be, what did I need to do was cognitively reframe. So gain emotional control really. So that, for example, that event happened to you, it's not in your control. What is, is your opinion. So work on changing your opinion of what just happened already. That kind of takes me out of that emotional distress not removing it, but somewhat discarding it for that moment. And then I think the second step is go, go towards your inner dialogue or check your inner dialogue, recognizing that is not something to be um, afraid of. That is actually an indication that the obstacle that you need to overcome. And then I would re- I revisited my purpose and that would be the third thing I would do in my process because it allows me to reframe my purpose and allow it to outweigh the pain that I'm feeling in that moment. So therefore it makes it even more meaningful to move forward, not only for that case, but future cases. Now I was kind of questioning if I hadn't written that in my journal prior, what would I have done in that moment? I don't really have an answer, but, um, I'm sure we're all in this profession for a deeper purpose and can articulate that if we have to. I love that point you brought up. Doing this beforehand, pre-preparing, I guess pre-preparing would be preparing for, <laughs> for an event like this, which is an eventuality, right? You cannot control the vicissitudes of life, especially when you work in acute care where people are going to die, where people are very sick. That's just the way it goes. So get this shored up beforehand. Exactly. So that was very helpful to be able to flip to that immediately and say, okay, now where am I? kind of centered me. The fourth step would be earning forgiveness. And that for me, the way I was able to define it was really articulating tangible, actionable tasks that will allow me to remove any self-doubt. So where did I get my self-doubt in that first case was whether I intubated deep enough, not too deep. Did I intubate well enough? What doses of epinephrine? All the things that I know from the algorithm but just reaffirming that knowledge and then filling in knowledge gaps if there are any, and then reviewing the case independently and we, or with my SOS person. And so I think those actionable tasks say that I'm doing the work to, to earn forgiveness. And that allows me to kind of feel lighter in the whole process. And then I think the final and probably the most important one was make that pact, like create a mental, I have a written contract in my journal that's just for myself and the patient. And it's a way of honoring them and knowing that if I was to 
dismiss any of these learning opportunities. I wouldn't be only doing a disservice to my purpose, but more so to the patient. Sharangan. It's been a pleasure. Been a slide scrub. Absolute delight. Absolute delight. Thank you. <laughs> okay, take care. And that is it for today. To learn more about one-on-one coaching and or sign up for a free coaching discovery session, check us out at roborman.com. That's also where you'll find the complete show notes for this or any other episode, a few free EMR charting templates, a new thing we've got. There you can also sign up for our newsletter and we've got a few other surprises on the site. You might say, well, what are those surprises? Well, they're surprises. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.